and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, the place where leading authors share objects that have inspired their creative process. I'm Katie Brand, and in this episode, my guest and I have something in common. We've both chaired the TV show Never Mind the Buzzcocks, although for me it was 15 minutes for charity, and for him it was three years. He's also a critically acclaimed stand-up, co-wrote and starred in the sitcom Grandma's House, and has written and directed two feature films. His book is Help, and his name, of course, is Simon Amstel. Simon, welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Thanks, Katie. It's very nice to see you. Yeah, it's really lovely to see you. Where have you been? I, 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 um, I saw you a while ago, but this is yeah. not for it. I should have just done this before we started. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, this is the kind of searing stuff that the Penguin Podcast is Yeah, after, but I missed you. That's the main point. I missed you as well, okay, and I was very pleased at the thought of seeing you today. Now, as you may or may not know, the backbone of this podcast is a collection of objects specially chosen by our guests that have inspired their writing or their work. And so Simon has chosen Post-it Notes, the voice memo app on his phone, a camera and his wireless headphones. And we'll find out why he's chosen those in a minute. So I loved your book, Simon. I loved it. I've just hoovered it up and now I've emailed about 15 people. Hope that's all right with you. That's very good. Mm. I've realised just hearing you do the introduction that I've misunderstood the word inspired. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I've chosen objects that just like help me do the writing. Okay. Like post-it notes. But that's fine. I think well it? then they're objects that have like helped with the perspire bit of uh, of genius. Fine. So, okay. Then so we're okay. I like your objects. They're all about the work. They're about the process. So you say in the book help that you were sort of tricked into writing it which is a very funny way to start but how did that come about? Well, it's true. I didn't want to write a book, but, um, you know, people are very insistent sometimes. <laughs> yeah. What it was, was they wanted to transcribe my stand-up. I should have really said, well, thanks, but I don't think there's any need to do that. But instead, my ego said, these words must be written down. <laughs> yes. And I didn't really even know who for, for people who don't like hearing stand-up out loud. And so I thought, if I can just write some other stuff around the stand-up, so about half of it is all new writing, then... It's maybe worthwhile as a book. Yeah, because it's not quite full transcripts because some comics like Stuart Lee have the full transcript, don't Mm -hmm. they, in the books that they've done and then just have little footnotes, whereas yours is kind of chunks from your various stand-up shows over the past few years but then interspersed with more observations and, and then there's these memoir bits. I think the thing about... Your stand-up, which doesn't work for every stand-up, is that it works brilliantly on the page as well as performing. Do you write your jokes, physically write them, before you perform them? So the writing of stand-up is actually done on stage with an audience. I think when I was starting out, I really didn't know what I was doing. So I would like try and work out how to structure a joke. And it, it was very mathematical almost. And then I was in a very small part of the tsunami. Do you remember the tsunami? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and the experience really showed me who I was, which is not somebody good in a tsunami. Right, OK. And we ended up up a hill because there was talk of another tsunami. The friend I was with, when some people came to give us food, because we didn't know how long we'd be there, refused to take bread because she said she wasn't eating bread <laughs> at the moment. And uh, I and I so I knew that was funny. Mm-hmm. And so I, when I came home to London, rather than dealing with the trauma of being in a tsunami, I went and did some stand up. And for the first time, just told a story without having any kind of written joke. I knew that what my friend had said in that moment was funny, but to tell that bit of the story, I had to really start at the beginning. We arrived in Thailand this certain time. And so to get to that part, which made me feel comfortable telling the story, 
I ended up talking about who I was in the story. And it turned out that I was even more of a lunatic than she was. And the process of writing stand-up became a process of self-discovery. Mm. There are some things you feel okay to say in the moment when you have an audience there and the mood is right and you're judging the mood of the audience and can I go there or can I not? That's a skill in itself. To actually deliberately write something down that's going to be published, that seems you say in the book, that sort of makes you feel a bit vulnerable or nervous. Yes, because it isn't all necessarily funny. Some of it's deliberately sad. Mm. And um, my defence mechanism, or one of them, is being funny. And I feel like I can say anything as long as there's laughter coming back. I feel safe. Mm -hmm. But the idea of just writing, you know, several paragraphs of very personal, deeply revealing material. I know there isn't this safety net of laughter coming. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, yeah, that was quite vulnerable. Yeah. And having looked back at it now, are you glad you've put in what you did put in? If there was anything true, interesting, funny, sad that I had in my head, I put it into the book. I feel better having not held back. Mm. For me, the whole thing is about getting it out of my head where it's causing me problems. Mm -hmm. To get it out of me is a great relief. And to see that nothing terrible happens. Yeah. That's the great gift, I think, of stand-up or maybe any kind of artistic process where you are revealing who you are. For me, the whole thing is a process of self-discovery and letting go of former traumas and troubles and confusions. So if I wasn't putting it all out there, I'd I'd be retaining some trauma. Mm -hmm. I don't want to retain the trauma. Yeah. I want it in a book where people can enjoy it. And be traumatised <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> on their own. Yeah. So let's go to your first object. Uh, oh, yes, the object. Yes, the object. And that helps you with your stand-up and all of your writing. And it is a packet of post-it notes, which you've got a packet there. I'm which holding you're, them. Which you're holding up. That's good. Holding up to the <laughs> mic. So tell us why you've chosen these. So for the book, post-it notes, very much essential, Katie. You also need a big wall. That's the other object. A big blank I, wall. You need a big blank wall. I mean, there were so many stories. And I knew that certain stories wouldn't make any sense if they came before other stories. So stories about being lonely and depressed and anxious, they, those stories would have to come before the stories about going to Peru and drinking ayahuasca and getting to the root of my depression and then finding the boyfriend that I'm with now. And do you use post-it notes in that way because you've also written feature films, obviously your stand-up, sitcom? I think I discovered this post-it note process from... <laughs> Um, You're going to be the face of post-it notes after this. God, I hope They're something going to happens. Be on the <laughs> Jeremy Dyson, who is in the League of Gentlemen, mm -hmm. he was the script editor on Grandma's House, and he taught Dan Swimer and I, who I wrote it with. I mean, it's so basic, but that each scene has to be doing something. And I have to say, Jeremy Dyson, who is the member of League of Gentlemen that people probably won't immediately recognise because he's a member that he writes, but he doesn't perform. Yes. And he helped me with some script editing on a film script I wrote. And it was literally like having access to an expert, doing just a one-to-one -one masters in writing. Yeah. I mean, And I think he probably gave me the same advice and it was great advice. So just explain what that advice was. There's a recent film that's coming out in March. It's called Benjamin and uh, it's quite personal and... Uh, what I thought I could do when I was writing that film was just just write things that had happened to me. Mm. <laughs> just keep writing stuff that had happened to me and eventually it will be an hour and a half long and that will be enough and that doesn't work. What the post-it notes help you do is really clarify what the scene is doing. 
So you might write a scene where there's a couple of people doing the washing up together and they have a conversation about Jesus. And uh, this is nothing that I would ever write. I love I love this, though. I love the, 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 the genius at work. Yeah. And so Jeremy Dyson would say, what's happening in that scene? Does the story move forward? Do we learn anything about the character? And you write down on the post-it note, hopefully you write something down like, Barry reveals to Tom that he is his uncle. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the story. But But there was also another bit, I think, Jeremy, I remember him saying to me, was about what does the person want and what happens if it doesn't happen or what happens if they don't get it? Yeah. And so that moves you on to the next scene. So if Barry wants to tell Tom he's his uncle, so he wants to tell him and he wants Tom to be pleased, what happens if Tom isn't pleased? And then that moves you on to a new scene. Because I have the same trouble. I love writing dialogue and then I slightly lose track of that I'm supposed to be telling a story. Yeah. And I can't just have people idly chatting for an hour and a half exactly however funny it might be and if you can't write down what happened in that scene on a post-it note then it isn't a scene Mm -hmm. it's just some chatting yes that's why post-it notes post-it notes excellent (laughs) this is your method now would you say and that that's improved it you just can't see what's happening unless you've got it up on the wall Mm -hmm. and unless the good thing is that you can take them off the wall and and put them in a different order because the other thing if you're just writing on on your computer do people still say computer? I believe so, yes. If you're writing on the computer. <laughs> How long were you in Peru for? <laughs> the year is 2075. <laughs> you can't necessarily see uh, what's going on. And it's harder to like copy and paste or, or cut and paste around. Yes, that's true. Until yes. you've really seen what's going on. You have to see the whole world. I mean, I guess people have a sort of slightly stereotypical sense of when you see scenes in films of people writing films in films uh-huh. they usually do have all these cards around but I think people think well what are they actually doing with them like why don't they just write it down on the bit of paper or the computer well thank goodness we did this podcast <laughs> we're just blowing open the creative process here like never before <laughs> One of the things about help that I thought was really interesting and I enjoyed particularly was the vulnerable side of yourself, the stories that you tell in it. And some of them are quite difficult reading in some respects. A friend of yours that you met, a guy called Freddie, who you had some contact with and then his life ended tragically and that really affected you. All those kind of stories that you've been really candid and open about that people might be surprised because in Pop World and Buzzcocks, obviously the whole thing was being quite acerbic and a bit sarcastic and very funny in that way. And there's this story that made me laugh, but it's very bittersweet about you deciding very bravely to come out when you were doing Pop World to the crew. <laughs> yeah. And you did it in such a sort of slightly nervous roundabout way. You, uh, you weren't sure if anyone had even noticed no what one you were saying. <laughs> it took me so many years of build up. And then there was one runner in the distance who gave me this look like he wasn't sure if he'd heard right. And I remember saying to him across the room, I think I'm going to have to do it again. (laughs) You're going to have to do a rewrite. Yeah, I did it again. And then then still no one really believed me for about two weeks. Yeah. It was odd. Very tough. (sighs) But your next object uh, is something that helps you write in all forms. So you've got your post-it notes in a kind of analogue way Mm -hmm. and the digital version is the voice memo app on your phone. So how do you use that? How do you go about doing that? What happens? I feel like I saw in the film about Allen Ginsberg's life, How, he spoke about poetry. This isn't a direct quote, but it's something like that poetry it almost has to be like vomited out of you. That's definitely not the direct <laughs> quote. <laughs> My version of that, I think, is 
rather than going to the computer and typing up what I think might be funny, it's just wandering around in life until I feel something that can either be sadness or confusion. Something new is happening and I will pull the phone out, go onto the voice memos and talk into the phone. And then I end up making myself laugh quite a bit. (laughs) Or I just talk through a deep sadness that I'm involved in and then play that back later. And then I see, oh, there's that bit around, you know, like three minutes into this recording. That's a line that I bet would be funny in front of an audience. And then I go in front of an audience and see if I was right. And uh, if I am, it stays in the show. Mm -hmm. And similarly with writing the book, even the bits that weren't stand-up, I used a similar process. I sat in a room with a friend and we just recorded endless conversations so I think it's that's a podcast in itself. I yeah, think. The, yeah, I mean that's essentially ninety percent of podcasts. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there be some books in these podcasts. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, one of the funny things about the book as well that I noticed is one of the refrains is people telling you to stop being funny and just do things. There's a very funny story about you shopping with an ex-boyfriend mm. where you bump into someone. We were together at the time and uh, his friend came over. I hadn't met the friend before and because I was uh, an anxious time in my life, I just got instantly nervous just because this new person was suddenly in the supermarket and the guy very sweetly said, hi, what are you up to? But I ended up just in a panic saying, you know, we've been doing some shopping, we've got a pineapple. And <laughs> and uh, my boyfriend didn't enjoy that. And afterwards, when the friend was gone, it took him about an hour. And then he said, why did you always have to perform? Why did you always have to be so funny? And I said, well, but it wasn't funny. It was it was a factual there thing. Was a, there was a, a germ of truth in it. Yes, we had a pineapple <laughs> in the thing. And he said, you deliberately chose the most humorous object in the trolley. Well, do you know what's interesting? Because I thought this when I read the book and I read this story. I interviewed an author called Imogen Hermes Gower, who wrote a book called The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock. And in the book, which is set in the 18th century, there's a whole bit about pineapples and about how they were a huge status symbol in 18th century London. They would cost something like £8,000 and people would get a pineapple not to eat but just to have at a party so that everyone could come and look at the pineapple <laughs> there's a very funny button in it on that story where you say I can't help it I'm just a genius like I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go for the thing that has the most impact <laughs> so you went for the pineapple which was true yeah. but I think using using humour and being funny to try and deflect awkward situations when we talk about comedians and I've talked to a number of comedians and obviously I am one as well when people will let me and um, a lot of comedians are introverted Mm. people not extroverts Mm. and what you're actually trying to do is control the parameters of social interaction so if you're up on stage and like you say I can if I'm raised and lit I can do it because I've drawn the line around I'm the one who's talking you don't get to just come up and spontaneously talk to me even if you heckle me you can't surprise me because I'm up here and I know what I'm doing and then at the end of the show it's finished I say it's finished and then I leave and you can't come and just come at me because I've defined how long this interaction is going to last and the terms on which it's going to be done and then I can go and that is actually an introverted thing to do Mm. so using humour to try and deflect unexpected social interactions, I think is quite common with comedians and is a sign of being an introvert more than anything. Does that ring true for you? No, that sounded right. Yeah, but it's a problem, isn't it, that we're such neurotic control freaks. Mm. I feel happy now that I've got to a place where I use comedy as a choice now rather than the constant panic button that I have to press. Mm. 
So that's good. And this thing of stop thinking how this is going to seem when you've written it down and just do it now. That sort of spontaneity. There's a few stories about you learning to be spontaneous. I had a therapist who thought it was almost like a magic trick, the ability to turn something into comedy very quickly. And it was a problem. It meant that I wasn't feeling the feelings of the moment, the feelings of the breakup, rather than turning it into a bit of stand-up that night. She eventually was able to make me cry. And <laughs> that was at her aim. She was so happy. Oh, my, I've never seen her so thrilled. <laughs> when you broke down and she finally cracked yes, you. Yes, I got him. I got him, a magic comedy bastard. <laughs> so your next object is a camera that you've brought along. What made you choose that? The camera is in the room because I read a book a few years ago called The Artist's Way, which I feel like a lot of people will know about. So The Artist's Way frees you of what she calls the inner critic. The process is every morning you wake up and you write three pages of stream of consciousness nonsense. And it frees you of thinking that it needs to be something special, that it needs to be in some way good. It's the first paragraph of the day that's hard, isn't it? I've read, actually, I can't remember who it was, it was someone very eminent, it might be someone like Somerset Maugham. He would leave his writing the day before halfway through a sentence so that all he had to do when he started the next morning was just complete that sentence <laughs> and then that would lead on to the next sentence. Right. So tell me how the camera that you brought plays into what you were saying about The Artist's Way, which is by Julia Cameron. So the other part of this book is giving yourself what's called an artist's date. You do stuff that you used to like as a child but have maybe forgotten. And so one of those things for me was photography. So I started going out into the street and taking photos of random people. And that's turned into... that. This was quite a few years ago. And that's turned into... A lengthy court case? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it will eventually. No, go on. Sorry. What? Um, no, that was funny. What's it turned into? <laughs> it's turned into... It's definitely a hobby. And I've ended up taking portraits of friends. The point of this thing is that it's nothing to do with your career, which is why it's awkward talking about it here. Now I'll have to do a, some sort of gallery exhibition What's with What's basically stuff. happened now is you've invited all the people that tricked you into writing this <sighs> book to trick you into making a coffee table volume. I won't be able to resist. Of your beautiful, with just nice bits of rice paper between each oh, photo. I'd love some rice paper. A little bit of rustle there. <laughs> nice. Anyway, so, yeah, so she suggests that you do something that you used to love to do, but you've forgotten. Then you end up having a hobby. I didn't really have any hobbies. And... Well, actually, the thing is, that a lot of people have pointed out that work in creative businesses is that your hobby becomes your job. Yes. Um, which I think sometimes is misinterpreted as being a kind of joyous, freeing thing, mm. but actually destroys the love of your hobby <laughs> and just gives it a kind of sense of stress. Once your hobbies become your job, you have to then actively go and find another hobby. Yes, almost. but it's, it's a way of reminding yourself that you also love the thing that you're doing uh, so that you can have money. Mm. And it's just lovely to do something creative. I haven't got a photography agent. Mm -hmm. there's, no, there's no pressure from anywhere mm -hmm. for me to take good photographs. And they're not good. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're not good, Katie. <laughs> Out of focus. Oh, yeah. The wrong thing. They're yeah. the worst. They're the worst photographs. Just, is there lots of photos of pointing <laughs> at the sky where a bird was before it flew off? <laughs> I'd love to talk just now about the final chapters of the book, which deal with your trip to Peru, uh, in which you took part in an ayahuasca ceremony. Ayahuasca? 
Okay, so it's a herb. Some people, I think, have probably referred to it as a hallucinogenic, but the people who practice it with this medicine call it a medicinal herb in, in South America. And it gives you visions and allows you to connect yourself and nature. So if you don't mind giving people just a little overview of what, of what went on when you went to Peru and why you decided to go. The first thing to say is I'd had two years of psychotherapy I had classic depression, is what the therapist said. Mm. And um, <laughs> she took umbrage at. Yes, I was very upset to have the normal kind of depression. Come on now. You know, I'm on television. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so then I had this dinner with some old school friends, and one of them said that he'd gone to Peru and he drank this thing called ayahuasca. And he, when he spoke about it, he looked like, like he was eight years old. He had this joy. And I thought, I need whatever that is. So I went to Peru. Again, on my own. And the deal is you're there with a group of other people from around the world. And at the place that I went to, there were four ceremonies over a week and a talking circle after each ceremony the morning after. So it's set up almost like the way people might think of a retreat. or Yes, like very a, much a retreat. And you're a, there just for that. And there are people there that are experienced practitioners. Shamans. Who need it, shamans. Yes. And, they, and you have accommodation there and you stay in the group. And it's kind of quite structured in that sense like you know when things are going to happen yeah. and it's properly organized to some extent yeah yeah it's not like just a bunch of lunatics <laughs> wandering through hacking yeah. through the amazon yeah <laughs> yeah no it's all uh so yeah, you arrive it's all legit. so you arrive and you get settled and then what happens over the course of the ceremonies what happens is it's quite particular to each individual but for me i was reborn <laughs> so that was good so that was good <laughs> I mean, that's that's yeah. pretty huge. It's quite a heavy story. So I mm. might just tell you the sort of basics. Apart from being reborn and reset, which was a word I quite liked. Mm. You know what? I, I, I came out with like a new sense of strength, I think. I went in with mainly just two defence mechanisms that I could use at any one time. So I, ha I used to have shyness. That was the way of coping with the world. It just would go quite quiet. And then I had funniness. But if anything of any seriousness ever happened, I was lost. In the second ceremony, I really felt like I got who I was. Thing. You use a quite interesting phrase where you refer to the second ceremony as, as healing the wound or closing the wound. Yeah. That I thought was a really striking sentence, that there had been some wound psychologically early on for whatever reason, and that that was something that made you have these responses where you wanted to be funny or quiet and that or, and that perhaps even had informed your whole career in yeah. some respects. Yeah. And that somehow you were able to heal it or close it or do something well, with it. At least understand it. it or ha there was an awareness of it. There was a conversation that just happened between my present self and my baby self mm. where there was just an acknowledgement of the story that that baby had created unconsciously in order that he would survive. Once I understood that, then I was able to, I guess, feel safe. I guess just feel safe. I think another theme that comes from the, your writing about that whole experience and the ceremonies that I've read about with other people. For example, there have been some experiments done in a medical setting with LSD for people with depression. Mm -hmm. And that all the people that kind of reported positive effects, a lot of them did, a huge number, reading their individual stories, and they haven't conferred, they all refer to this sense afterwards where they feel their depression has lifted of being part of a flow mm. or being part of the flow of life or being connected deep, with yes, nature. Yes, I felt this deep connection to nature afterwards. I wanted to hug a tree desperately. Couldn't find a tree despite being in a rainforest. <laughs> 
but found a wooden post that I couldn't stop hugging for about <laughs> half an hour. I, I remember thinking, that charity Friends of the Earth, they shouldn't be called Friends of the Earth. But we're not Friends of the We are Earth. Yes. We are Earth. This idea that like, oh, we're, you know, quite close friends. Like it's it's us. We are nature. I felt deeply connected to nature and, 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 and I suppose held by it. I didn't feel separate from it. The problem that we have now is that we feel like we are separate from nature, separate from the planet that we are sitting on. That all, it all kind of made sense after this ceremony. And then um, in the last ceremony, it wasn't just that I felt all right in myself. I noticed I was part of a community of people at this uh, retreat and I, I was looking around at them throughout the ceremony, like checking to see if they were okay and like pulling them towards me and like having these conversations. But that sense of being connected to other humans that are naturally connected in an unforced or non-threatening way it was obviously something you needed out the experience because that was something that was so missing from before. Yeah, I think certainly as a performer, as you were talking about earlier, that thing of having this, I'm on this stage, I'm raised and lit, you're over there, you can't touch me. It was a way of like being in the world, not being separate from it, not commenting on it, not, you know, so just I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a bit of this world. And you've been able to keep that feeling with you to sustain it to some extent. The way I've kept it in me is through the final object. Your final object. <laughs> I think I chose good objects yes, here. Yes, you this did. This flowed beautifully. <laughs> um, the wireless headphones. What I do with these wireless headphones is I stick them on my head in the morning, play music, and for around 20 minutes or however long I fancy doing it, jump around or dance around like a lunatic. It's this kind of meditation for me that I like even more than meditation. It's really wonderful. In the same way that the morning pages freeze you creatively as a writer, nobody's watching. It doesn't really matter. You're just jumping around. And this is the sort of thing, again, that you used to do as a toddler, that at some point you kind of lose. You kind of sort of forget that you're a person with a body which must move. It must move this body. We are, we, you know, we're like animals. We have to move. And somehow it doesn't um, continue after, at some point, you, I guess maybe it's, is it puberty? Could like, be. Just stop moving. Yeah. But also the culture we live in, and this is it's quite restrictive in that way. Not all cultures in the world behave in that way. I think right. we're particularly in the sort of Western Europe, quite funny about showing ourselves, showing the animal side of ourselves. Yeah. Well, it's all been fascinating. Before before you go, though, I'd love to just play an extract from the audio book of Help, uh, which uh, you have done, which is fantastic. And uh, here in this particular clip, you're talking about your dad. But we didn't talk for a while, and then he phoned me and said, I've been thinking, one day I'm going to be on my deathbed, and if we don't have a relationship, there will be regret. So now we make sure we see each other, like, once every couple of months, and I always regret it. <laughs> but when he dies, I'm going to feel pretty good. When I was 23, I went to my dad's second wedding, full of tightly repressed rage, only given expression by my wedding outfit. I wore a suit because it was a wedding, but I also went for a bright red t-shirt with the word anti printed on it, plus a necklace with a silver gun pendant, and a brooch that looks a bit like a swastika. OK, Dad, I'll come to your wedding, but only if I can come dressed as anger. When I was 25, my friend Kevin told me about something called the Landmark Forum, a three-day life-transforming course. Around 150 people in a room in Houston were encouraged by the leader to phone people who you've been blaming for everything in your lives. I phoned my father and said, Hi, I think I've been 
I'm sorry for blaming you for the divorce that happened. I think I understand now that you were a fallible human being and not the evil monster that I made you out to be at the time. He said, I've been waiting ten years to hear that. It felt like a real moment of healing. And then he said, what else did you learn at this course? Did they tell you it's possible the divorce made you gay? I said, we just sorted everything out. Brilliant. And just just very funny kind of insight into your relationship with your dad and how you manage that. Yeah, we have just about sorted it out now. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) So that was Help, written and read by my guest, Simon Amstel. I wanted to play that because I think the extracts of your stand-up next to what you've written originally for the book just work absolutely brilliantly. And uh, you should continue doing that, I hope. I hope they trick you into writing another book because it's so brilliant. All right, I'll see you again in five years. Yeah. (laughs) Also, before you go, just a reminder to our listeners that if you haven't already, do subscribe to the Penguin Podcast using any of the pod players or podcatchers such as iTunes, Acast, SoundCloud or Spotify on your desktop or smartphone. And if you like what you hear, please do share, rate and review the Penguin Podcast because we'd love to know what you think. So thank you so much, Simon Amstel, for being my guest today with your brilliant, moving, hilarious, profound book, Help. I would just recommend it to anyone. As I say, I've already recommended it to about 15 people and I might just sort of sit in the room and force a couple of them to read it right sounds to the like, end. Sounds like good marketing. Yes, it is. it's a great book. Yeah. It's a great read. Thanks, Katie. Uh, and a really amazing insight into you as well, because I think you've been in people's minds. for You've, you've been well known for so long and yet perhaps people don't know as much about you as they could so it's very generous of you to give people this insight i think because it's that's great. me that's me yeah generous twitty <laughs> and the book is free yeah <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much simon thank you Out now from Penguin Random House Audio comes a terrifying account of how climate change is worse, much worse than you think. David Wallace-Wells explains how the slowness of climate change is a fairy tale, perhaps as pernicious as the one that says it isn't happening at all. And if your anxiety about it is dominated by fears of sea level rise, you're barely scratching the surface of what terrors are possible, even within the lifetime of a teenager today. The Uninhabitable Earth is available to download in audiobook now.